Astonishing Legends would like to thank the Great Courses Plus, Helix, Simply Safe, Lightstream, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Wait, wait a second. Where's the cold open? Well, this show doesn't, it doesn't have one. What? What do you mean? <laughs> you said this was going to be different, but we're not going to have a cold open is what you're saying. Well, I mean, we can do one if you want, but I wanted to set kind of a different tone for tonight. Ah, a little uh, more loosey-goosey, you know? Well, one, people probably don't enjoy it. <laughs> That's fine. Secondly, what do you mean loosey-goosey? You're going to, don't tell me you're going to wing it. We're going to wing it. We're going to wing no, it. I hate that. No, that never goes well. We'll do it live. Anytime someone <laughs> says they're going to wing it. It never goes as they think it should. Well, I think we should still at least mention what we're going to talk about tonight, right? Yeah, yeah. Folks, uh, tonight's show is going to be a bit of a departure for us from our regular format. More on that in a minute, but rest assured, we're still going to get into some weird stuff. Well, yes, sort of. Tonight, we're going to take a look at one of the most famous missing ship stories in the world, the Cotopaxi. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Sarah, roll the theme. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. It was incredibly exciting. I've done a countless number of shipwreck dives, but this one truly stood out. NOAA marine biologist Michael Barnett to Ed Matza of the Huffington Post, January 30th, 2020. Join us tonight as we take a look at the disappearance of the SS Cotopaxi. Okay. And we're back with at least some housekeeping. Yes, we are. Oh, go ahead okay. with the housekeeping. <laughs> Do you have any? No, uh, I thought you might, because this is kind of your field here. This is your wheelhouse. But you know what? This is also probably an area where people don't care for it as much because they want us to get to the story. Well, I disagree, but maybe so. Uh, anyway, we don't have any today, so we're going to skip through all, right. all of that, and we're going to do more of a topical show tonight, a little bit more conversational, more shooting from uh -huh. the hip. We're winging it a little bit. Uh, uh, there's, that, there's that phrase again. Well, yeah. we've we, we got more than a few requests over the years to weigh in on current events, and especially things tangentially related to stories we've already covered. So that's what this episode is. And we wanted to see what it would be like to do a more conversational show because this particular topic, it didn't have enough for us to uh, do one of our patented deep dives on it. it it's more like a, a discussion piece, like something that you and I would talk about in a bar forest or something like that, which I thought would be a fun thing to share with our listeners. Well, you bring up a couple of interesting points in that, yes, you're right. There's been a lot of topics over the years where people would love us to weigh in on or cover or tell us what's going on in the weird, wide world about a certain subject. And somebody will say to us, hey, can you cover X? Uh, or I've always wanted to know more about this. And it'll be something like, uh, I guess, like the Mystery Hum or the Black Knight Satellite. <laughs> yeah, we're intrigued about that too. And when you hear about it coming up in the news, Scott and I will discuss it and we find that fun. But there's just not a lot there to tell you what it's all about. It's too much of a mystery. Or sometimes the mystery, it really isn't a mystery when you get to the end of it. There seems to be, to us at least, a simple explanation, which is interesting in and of itself, but not worth one of our usual, regularly formatted, traditional episodes. So I think what Scott's getting at is that it's still going to be a lot of fun to talk about these kind of things, but 
in a lighter, more casual manner, because, yeah, there's just not a lot of real deep facts to kind of dig up with this one. Yeah, there are a few things I want to talk about tonight. I guess this is, in a way, a little bit of housekeeping, but since we're letting people in into backstage a little bit, that's what I wanted to do with this episode. Mm. So mm-hmm. there's some stuff that I wouldn't normally share on a show, but because we're changing the rules, these are things I want to talk about, because I think it's... <laughs> I don't know it's pertinent. Sometimes you find you're keeping these secrets. They're not really secrets, but they're uh-huh. just like, I want you guys to know. For example, I'd like you to know that our brand new seven-month-old iMac Pro, which we use to do everything on, died. And we lost the four-terabyte state-of-the-art hard drive just completely croaked. And I don't know what happened to it. I came up to the studio. It had been working overnight compressing some videos, but that's an easy yeah. thing to do. And it was just on the Apple. It was just a, like the little Apple was up on the screen, yeah. nice and clean, no progress bar, no nothing else. And I sat down and I had a heart to heart with that Apple for a few minutes. Oh. And nothing changed. There was, uh, as you're fond of saying, which I think is a military term for when you're in a hopeless situation, everything I did, no effect. <laughs> well, that- yeah, well, that's your best attempts at uh, uh, trying to affect a threat or some problem. Yeah. Well, generally, it's, yes, it's best when applied to the military fighting large monsters. But at least you didn't get the sad Mac, right? No, Is I that, didn't get the it, sad you know, Mac. I don't think that's a thing anymore. I don't think those pop up really in the the context you're talking about, but it would have been cool because it would have been a freaky paranormal twist on this computer problem, which I still believe is spiritual in nature. Uh, no, no, this machine is toast. I mean, I, you know, I'm trying to think what it was working on when it went down because it was working on show stuff, but I think it was working on a compression of a video about the Voynich manuscript, which I'll explain that in a minute. But either way. All very interesting. Yeah, either way, it died and I tried, I was on the phone with AppleCare for an hour and a half, you know, restarting it 17 different ways from Sunday, zapping the PRAM for those of you who know Macs, all that stuff Uh that you do, none of it worked. And so they were like, you got to bring this in. So I took it in and the Apple store currently is in possession of it and trying to rebuild it from the inside out. Not even a year old, this machine, not even eight months Uh old, which, uh, and it's kind of loaded up. It has a lot of stuff. So it's very disappointing, (laughs) which means (laughs) means we're currently recording this show on a five-year-old MacBook Pro, which is doing its best to hold its own, although the fan sometimes gets kind of crazy. But um, Okay, why, how is this relevant to all of us listening to this now, I- including myself? I don't know. I guess just I'm experiencing a little bit emotional angst about it, and I'm frustrated oh, about it, and I wanted other people to know. It makes me feel better to talk about it. <laughs> okay, well, misery loves company, so... Yeah, and things uh, are back down. Is, that's the plus side. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, yeah. No, we didn't lose a lot. But what you're saying is that you may... Will this show sound any different other than content? I don't think so, but I'm not okay. positive. I'm hearing a little warbling in your audio right now, but that is I see. unrelated to the computer. That usually has to do with Very our good. connection, which brings me to my next point. Something, uh, we've been keeping something from you, listeners, dear listeners, that I wanted to go ahead and let you know now that we're settled in. And that is that uh, Forrest and I are no longer in the same blanket fort. Oh, yeah, I know. It's kind of sad. Well, it smells it? better in here already. <laughs> well, that's relatively to uh, our own perspectives, yes. Yes, no. Okay. Um, we, uh, I moved to the East Coast about five months ago, full-time. I am now a resident of North Carolina, and Forrest is still wow. in Los Angeles, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, although my wife, who uh, works in L.A., she is back and forth still, so I will still be in L.A. from time to time. But for the most part, I am on the East Coast with uh, my son, 
and our little dog, Lulu, the astonishing dog, who you, if you follow us on social media, you've seen, but. um, It's the magic of the interwebs. Yes. And we're able to record remotely using all kinds of high tech stuff that was working great up until a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, when the machine crashed, I'm excited about this too. We haven't been. We haven't said anything about it because we were going to roll it out later and be kind of a surprise, but we wanted to increase our presence on our YouTube channel. So we are in the process of creating YouTube versions of our back catalog. And ah, that yeah, is... there's the there's the relevant mention I yes, was waiting for. Yes. Okay. So we have this YouTube channel that we've had for a while, and we wanted to get more stuff up there. And we had our good friend Reese Waters, who is a uh, former BBC producer. He's now producing and doing, uh, I can't remember who he's working with now, but he has moved to Nova Scotia from uh, Wales. He was over in Wales and actually helped us out providing background and research material on the Berwyn mm-hmm. Mountain incident, as well as the Broadhaven School. So uh, we were able to put those series together with his help. Anyways, an After Effects guru, and uh, we asked him, and I asked him specifically to build a special plate for us in After Effects that will have our logo and some smoke and waveforms that are connected to the mm. audio, like you see on Dateline when they have audio but don't have picture, just to give people something interesting to look at on YouTube. So we're in the process of converting our old shows into that format so that we can post them up there. But the thing is, it's a heavy lift for After Effects, which is this program that renders all that stuff together. So each episode of the show, you know how long our show is, takes several days to render. And that is one thing that the computer was doing when it croaked. But um, it's been doing that for, I don't know, 60 days. And I restart it frequently and it shouldn't be an issue. It actually renders in the background most of the time. That shouldn't have killed the hard drive. Hmm. However, Uh, let me ask you this. Can can Reese... uh... Can you do some After Effects, much like you see on Dateline or 48 Hours, when one of us says something really awful and incriminating, it gets yellow highlighting? Oh, yeah. Or it fuzzes ends. Yeah. So we can go back through all the <laughs> awful things we've said that generate so many uh, hateful letters to us, and he can just circle them, and, and that can be brought fresh to your mind. Yes. But the, you know what? You listener. always say that for us, but we really don't get that many <laughs> hateful letters. We don't get that. No, many. we, well, no, of Considering course not. Considering how long we, we've been we, around and how many shows we've done, I, I would say. No. That uh, very few people are angry. Well, no, because look, we're conscientious and thoughtful people, I'd like to think, and we try not to upset people. But uh, of course, uh, some things we say, not really self-incriminating, but, you know, we misspeak sometimes and that happens with everybody. But no, I just like the, uh, I just think of all, all of the texts one day when I get investigated, will just be brought up in a 48 hours episode or it's just highlighted or the rest of it's grayed out and then focused on uh, something uh, I said that's taken out of context. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get him working on that uh, so we can have this. Yeah, we soon. will. Well, uh, but, but the exciting news is that um, that machine should be back uh, later this week from when I'm recording. This is on Monday on the week that we're releasing this episode. And when it gets back, we'll be back on to that. We're going to roll out the episodes from 2019 first. So we're, we're going to go backwards with those. We'll get those out and then eventually we'll have every show going up there onto YouTube, and we're just trying to in, increase access. Because I guess uh, YouTube's what? The number three search engine in the world, right, Forrest? Isn't that what you said? I heard the number two search engine in the world that's used because number one would be Google. Number two, the meaning of YouTube is that a lot of people first look for their media on YouTube. They'll search for something they want to know more about on YouTube to see if there's a video. So I've heard a lot of people actually as well listen to their podcasts through YouTube and get all their other information through YouTube as well. So it's it's fitting we should have a presence there as well. That's just as terrific and dynamic and robust and astonishing as we are in the podcast realm. 
Wow, you really, you went from shooting us down at the top of the show to really building us up there. So I feel good about that. No, it's not, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, we, no, we, just, we need to be there just because everyone else is. That's Well, we're going to be there. Okay. We're going to be there at least first with our back catalog. Uh, as soon as we get all those shows compressed, like I said, it takes almost a week to do each episode. So we're working on that. As soon as the computer gets back from, it's, well, from the dead. Okay. And then, uh, Sad Mac we'll Land. Get, we'll get back on that. Sad Mac Land. All right. But, all right. So let's talk about the Cotopaxi. It's about Cotopaxi. darn time. Is it Paxi or Poxy? Well, it's, what's funny is I would believe in Spanish, it'd be Cotopaxi, Cotopaxi, because the X would be a, a soft uh, H sound, like Mexico. You don't say Mexico yes. in Mexico. However, a lot of people, uh, probably gringos especially, will say Cotopoxy. Cotopoxy. Right. Actually, the O, making the O the A. So we will say it uh, Cotopoxy and Cotopoxy interchangeably tonight. All right. Well, here's the first thing we got to start out with. With this ship, some people haven't heard of it. A lot of people have. We said that it's famous. It kind of is one of the most famous ships to have gone missing in the Bermuda Triangle. But the one thing that really put it on the pop culture map, really put it on the pop mm -hmm. culture map, was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Well, I, I saw that as a child in the theater. I You probably yeah. weren't even born yet when what we saw Close about? Encounters. You're not that much did, older than did me. Did you see it in the theater? I did actually. Thank really? you very much. As a yes. as a toddler. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm a toddler. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this though. That movie had a tremendous impact on probably where I am today in studying this kind of stuff and wanting to present on it. And I was so I was blown eight. away. Thank you. Mm, I was eight. Probably a very immature eight, but I would have been uh, more closer to twelve at the time. So yeah. the idea, though, what I'm getting at here, Scott, is that that movie just blew me away. I was so enthralled with it. Uh, we really never had never seen anything like that movie other than Spielberg's Jaws, which was another huge blockbuster that blew us all away. But Close Encounter really spoke to me in a way. Uh, it was just so miraculous and marvelous. And uh, as you'll see, if, if you've ever watched that movie, we suggest uh, you can actually go to, well, we watched clips of it, that scene particularly, in uh, on YouTube. That's what I'm saying. You got to yeah. be on YouTube. Everything's on there. So yeah. uh, that scene in particular, you could see what we're talking about without even uh, having to uh, stream the movie or, or rent the disc or go uh, dig it out somewhere. But in typical Spielberg fashion, it's very dramatic directing. And he, as you'll see with Spielberg, what he loves to do is introduce new and exciting information and action into an otherwise still or empty frame. So the point I'm getting at here is that, and he got that from Hitchcock, <laughs> that it's this beautiful shot of the dunes and suddenly three UN or those old Toyota Land Cruisers come shooting over the dunes. And then helicopters are followed by it. And it just builds a lot of excitement. And of course, the camera rolls back and it's this ship that's stuck in the middle of the desert. Yeah. And it eventually, you see the framing of the word of the name of the ship, Cotopoxy. And my point being is, as a kid, I didn't really know that story at all. I was well, just blown I think most away. people that saw the movie didn't know it. It really put it yeah, on the map that's, yeah, for a exactly, lot of people. Exactly. So that's like a good maritime point. experts would have known about it, right? But you know, this is pre-internet, pre that kind of pop culture. The, you know, maybe it might have been. I don't know. You know, I'm speculating here. It might have been in an episode of In Search of, or it might have been. A, uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they covered it, or in an episode of Unsolved Mysteries or something. But right. for the most part, it was kind of an esoteric maritime mystery. Not not as famous as the Mary Celeste, anyway. No, certainly, and and we'd all even. As a kid, I'd heard of the Flying Dutchman and some of the other uh, ships that are more famous throughout history. 
probably a little stranger, uh, but what the code epoxy was known for, and of course what's intimated in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, is that it had something to do most definitely with the Bermuda Triangle, which was big around the time that the movie came out. So that's what I knew as a kid, like, wow, did it really go missing in the Bermuda Triangle? And where did the people go? And, and as was revealed in the movie, not spoiling it here, Scott, I'm just saying what's revealed in the movie is that there may be a more far out otherworldly explanation other than, well, the ship just sank in a storm in the general vicinity. So it gave you some hope that, wow, maybe we'll get an answer one day uh, that is extraterrestrial for all these mysteries that go on, as well as the fate of Flight 19, which is also part of the first few beginning scenes of the movie. Yeah, well, the code epoxy actually is is a good half hour in, for the record. Right. Uh, I know this only because I looked today, because I can remember where it was either. But um, I have the, you know, one of those cloud services. I have Voodoo. Mm-hmm. I have Close Encounters in there. The director's cut, which I'm not sure how different it is in the middle. But yeah, that scene is 33 minutes in. So the opening scene is in the Sonoran Desert, right. which is in uh, Baja, California, and Mexico, down in that area. And that's where Flight 19 turns up. And then the Code Epoxy, about 33 minutes in, they show the Code Epoxy out in the Gobi, which is, uh, like you said, it's it's a very great scene. But that's when I was first introduced to the idea of that ship. And the ship became uh, decidedly famous after that, much to the chagrin of a lot of the surviving family members, I should say, of the victims who were lost on the Code Epoxy, which was 32 guys uh, that went to sea on it and were never seen again. So yeah. does, does that include the captain? Yes. Right. Yeah. Part of the captain uh, 32 uh, in crew total. Yeah, it's a train horn and my fans going crazy. So mm. I'm going to acknowledge the fan here in a minute. Um, so yeah. anyway, mm-hmm. uh, go ahead, Forrest. Huh? Oh, go. start the show. Yeah, start the show. Yeah. Okay. The thing about the Code Epoxy is <laughs> it actually hit our Twitter feed way back in 2015. It was in May of 2015. There was this story that came out, and and I love it. You guys out there, the, and I've said this before, you always ping us when things start getting crazy or there's some kind of weird news, and the Twitter feed lit up, and it was all about how the Code Epoxy had drifted into port and <laughs> into its, its original destination in Cuba which is where it was actually headed. And the story came out of a news organization, if you want to call it, called the World News Daily Report. And what this story said was that this ship had showed up with nobody aboard. It was a little rusty, but, you know, the superstructure was gone, but the hull was intact, and you could read code epoxy on the side, and it had drifted into Havana, Cuba, where it was originally supposed to be uh, showing up in 1925. Well, it turns out that that whole story was a crock and the World News Daily Report is in fact a satirical organization, although mm. it takes the satire pretty far. If you look at, <laughs> I actually went over to Snopes because it's a, that's a great website. That's the first place to check. When you see an article like that, you want to go to uh, Snopes and see what they've got. And they've got the picture from the article. It's this old ship. They're showing the code epoxy. The ship in the article is a very badly photoshopped version, I believe, based Mm. on what I know about Photoshop. It looks to me like the ship from Close Encounters has been (laughs) cut and pasted into uh, some water. Very poorly done. Well, that's what I would do uh, as a nod to the movie. 
Right. And so here's what the article, I guess, originally said. This is from Snopes.com. This was actually, this entry was actually written by David Mickelson, who's one of the founders of Snopes, I believe. The Cuban Coast Guard announced this morning that they had intercepted an unmanned ship heading for the island, which is presumed to be the SS Cotopaxi. SS, by the way, stands for steamship, for those of you Hmm. who don't know that. Uh, The SS Cotopaxi, which does not make sense on the minnow from Gilligan's <laughs> Island. Definitely not a steamship. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, what about the uh, USS, the USS so-and-so? Oh, the, the, for, yeah, I can't remember what that is. Yeah. I'd always heard it was a United States ship, but uh, that's... Uh, it could be. I can't remember. I know that MV is merchant vessel. SS yeah, so we're is steamship. Yes, we're going to talk about one, too. And then yeah. HMS would be Her Majesty's ship. And this is all probably wrong, and we're going to get letters, but... Yeah, but that's what we're doing. Don't worry about the letters. All right, I'm not. Yes, I'm not. You worry about them too much. It's just off the top of our head here, yeah. Which is presumed to be the SS Cotopaxi, a tramp steamer which vanished in December 1925 and has since been connected to the legend of the Bermuda Triangle. The Cuban authorities spotted the ship for the first time on May 16th near a restricted military zone west of Havana. They made many unsuccessful attempts to communicate with the crew and finally mobilized three patrol boats to intercept it. Quote, it is very important for us to understand what happened. Such incidents could be really bad for our economy. So want to make sure this kind of disappearance doesn't happen again. The time has come to solve the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle once and for all, end quote. Mm -hmm. Now, anyone reading this should know, I mean, when you first see this link, if you actually read the article, which granted, when something exciting like this comes out, nobody reads the article. They see the headline (laughs) and they're like, oh, check this out. Yeah. But it says right here, they tried to communicate with the crew. You really, you tried to communicate with the crew of a rusty old boat that's been missing since 1925. Like what crew? Well, that's going to be a crew? story. Yeah. Is that these people, uh, <laughs> either they're really old and they're like, you know, 110 now, <laughs> 110. but they've been living on this uh, ship and just it's its own little culture, which Fishing is kind of for food. Yeah. It's kind of like an, a post-apocalyptic movie, or I'm thinking of Waterworld, you know, where there's an yeah. old oil tanker converted into a... Uh, a galley ship by Dennis Hopper. Yeah. yeah. But they've been living on it in, in, for generations. Or uh, the movie The Island, that was uh, also Peter Benchley. Oh, yes. With uh, the famous David Warner as the uh, uh, basically a uh, generations of pirates who have been uh, cut off and still keep pirating. And that's how they make a living generations later from probably the 1700s. But uh, in this well, case, yeah, no, there was, a, like you said, you, you take a look at the website. If you actually start reading it, and you use your critical thinking skills, something should not ring true to this as you get to Yeah, it. it doesn't ring true. But past the bad Photoshop of the image that accompanied it, the World News Daily Report has a disclaimer right on their webpage that says, World News Daily Report is a news and political satire web publication which may or may not use real names, often in semi-real or mostly fictitious ways. Yeah. All news articles contained within worldnewsdailyreport.com are fiction and presumably fake news. Any resemblance to the truth is purely coincidental, except for all references to politicians and or celebrities, in which case they are based on real people, but still based almost entirely in fiction. So that's their claim to fame there. There's there's a whole Wikipedia page on them that has a lot more nasty things to say about them, actually. Oh, dear. Well, (laughs) well, just because as far as satire goes, they apparently have a very unfriendly bent. It's not clear what their goals are, but... This thing, that article, that went worldwide like quick. And I would say mostly because of Close Encounters, because without Close Encounters, most people wouldn't even know the mystery of the Cotopaxi. But it, that's what really propelled it into the zeitgeist, to use a word I haven't gotten to say on the show in a long time. Now, he says it a lot in private, too. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> just, folks, just so you know, it comes up uh, in every conversation we have on the phone. Yeah, so the ship, it did not, it was not manned. It wasn't there. It's not the Cotopaxi. It did not turn up in Cuba. It's technically, at the time of this, 
it was still missing. But what the really fascinating thing is, is that the wreckage of what might be the code epoxy had been discovered many years prior to this fake news article coming out, but nobody knew it at the time, not in 2015 anyway. Well, no, and it's, I gotta say, the mystery is perhaps still not completely solved, which is kind of interesting in and of itself is the way mysteries go. But I just wanted to say that, you know, as you were speaking there about how this kind of thing gets started and what propels it and what keeps it uh, rolling is that other sites or outlets of information, I won't even say news because I'm not sure what they're about, but there was an Associated Press report that came out of the Seattle Times that they ran with it, and that's where it was published, uh, saying that a website named Clixoni or Clixoni, K-L-I-X-O-N-Y, posted that story a week after that date uh, there, let's see, in 2015, around that same time, claiming that the Cuban Coast Guard had spotted the ship on the water, intercepted it, and they were in possession of it. And it was uh, in that same secret Cuban uh, naval base. But of course, the Associated Press, as they are want to do and should do, track down somebody from the U.S. Coast Guard. And they cite here Petty Officer 3rd Class Eric Woodall, a spokesman for Miami's U.S. Coast Guard office, and they worked very closely with the Cuban authorities, and they told the AP that following Monday that his agency had not received any reports of the SS Cotopaxi ever being recovered. But, of course, since then, numerous versions of the story had been posted over the past two years. And it does confirm, it says, a May 2015 story first appeared in World News Daily Report, an admitted publisher of hoaxes. So, again, that's what happens a lot of times when this fast-moving 24-hour cycle of news where you're just grabbing headlines and it's clickbait and you're throwing stuff up and you're not really checking into it because people have moved on. They don't really care that much, it seems, in a lot of cases. But we do. Well, we try to. Well, we do try to. And uh, so we wanted to take a quick look. Uh, and when I say a quick look, I mean, we, we, it's it's the opposite of our uh, our deep dives. This is more of a, a brushing on the surface. But we okay. wanted to look into this a little more because I wanted to know, I've wanted to know more about this ship since I saw it in, right. in, in Close Encounters. And um, we we had talked about covering it over the years, but now seemed like a good time to do it because it's in the news again. And that's what brings us to talking about it now. This is a topical, astonishing legend. It's unfolding right before our very eyes. Well, and Forrest, I think you can go ahead and poo-poo the, where this story goes. <laughs> you and I are going to part ways on this, I think, a little bit. Um, I think I there's going to be a... I that. I think... I think we're going to go in different directions. Hmm, okay. I think we're going to go in different directions as this unfolds. But let's talk about it. Let's go back to the Cotopaxi itself. Just some of the basic facts about it, because I think this is interesting stuff. It, I never knew where it was coming from or even where it disappeared. The The broad strokes on that are that it was sailing out of Charleston with a load of coal. South Carolina. The, yes. Yeah. For, Charleston, South Carolina. Right. Sorry. With a load of coal from the Clinchfield Coal Company, and it was owned by a subsidiary of Clinchfield Coal, which was a huge coal company in West Virginia and in coal country. And they were taking the coal down to Cuba, to Havana, and that's where they were supposed to be going. And two days into the trip, there was a message, which we'll talk about, one of the last messages that came from the ship. And then it vanished off the face of the earth. Not a trace, nothing was ever found for quite a long time, and for all those people that are fascinated with the Bermuda Triangle, and obviously we've covered Flight 19, you, when you talk about the Bermuda Triangle, the first two things you talk about generally are Flight 19 and the Cotopaxi and how it 
completely disappeared, right? Well, uh, certainly Flight 19 for different reasons. And as we covered it, that one, there's a lot more elements that we know of about it because it was a military training exercise. So there was a lot more communication between the flight group and the Naval Aviation Authorities. And there's another element to the Flight 19 story that also, as we tried to point out when we covered it, that can really goose a story and that a rescue plane, a Martin Mariner, was sent after, and it also disappeared. And yes. as we thought, you know, not to spoil it if you haven't heard it, that show is a couple of years old now. And of course, it's all over the uh, the internet if you want to find it, is that they may be two separate incidents, but they're connected in this same operation. So there's two causal elements to those separate instances of aircraft disappearing, but connected in the same operation. So that doubles and intensifies the mystery, which is also connected to the Bermuda Triangle. In this case, it's really kind of a solitary event that the ship goes missing, but there's not a lot of communication that happens around this time. And uh, as we explain that, in some ways it adds to the mystery, in others there's less to examine about the mystery, which oddly enough makes it less of a mystery. So that's what we have here, and also the time frame is 20 years into the past as opposed to Flight 19. Actually kind of uh, right, uh, yeah, I think 1945 was Flight 19, 1925 is the date of this disappearance. So right. that time frame makes a difference technologically in, in the radio communications. You had ship-to-shore communications back then, and a distress signal was sent from the code epoxy, which was received in Jacksonville, Florida. So there was some communication, but it's kind of mysterious as well. There's not a lot of communication. Uh, there's not a lot of instruction or detail in what was going on with the ship. Also, another instance of famous slight communication between a ship or aircraft and the people trying to track it would be Amelia Earhart and her last messages of not getting enough information, which adds to the mystery. People don't really understand exactly what she was doing and if she were more elaborative let's say with her radio communications or new morse code we may have more answers to what happened to her and also in the case of the code epoxy well let's talk a little bit about the code epoxy i did want to say that uh, we got a lot of information and, and one of the reasons the code epoxy is back in the news is because of a new tv show that's coming on the science channel called shipwreck secrets and the premiere episode was titled bermuda triangle Hunt for the Code Epoxy, and this premiered on February 9th of 2020. It's available on demand right now. We do not have a relationship with this show. We are just covering this because uh, we're, we're generally interested in it. But there was a lot of really good information in that, and they did a lot of uh, great interviews with the people directly responsible for diving on a wreck that they believe may be the Code Epoxy. And that's what's really interesting about it, and that's part of the reason that it was in the news. I mean... They were obviously hyping the show up. That's why they made it the premiere. And that was a, a good thing to come out with. So in January of 2020, it was back in the news. And I'm sure a lot of people were like, oh, wait a minute. We've already been down this. That was a hoax. It was on Snopes, all that. And nope, this is a new story about a wreck that actually was discovered. They're not even really sure in the late 70s or possibly the early 80s yeah. called the Bear Wreck. And uh, Bear like B-E-A-R. So at least that's what I how I think they're referring that's to. That's how I've it. seen it, yes. Yeah, so 
And the bear wreck is this uh, wreck that divers know about off the coast of Florida. I think what's 25 or 30 miles out to sea off the... Um... Yeah, you're right. So where the, the where the bear wreck is, where they know there is an actual shipwreck, is about, uh, I think, 22 miles or so off the coast of the city of St. Augustine in Florida, in the northeast corner of the state, along the coastline, of course, uh, this city. But... It's a really interesting city, St. Augustine. It is the oldest continuously inhabited European-established settlement in the contiguous United States. I don't know if you knew that. No. Yeah, know. it's the that's it's the oldest uh, darn city in the U.S. that's been, again, not abandoned. And right. going since it was founded in 1565 by Spanish explorers. So that alone is pretty interesting, but also because of that, in the uh, in the waters off of St. Augustine, there are tons of wrecks from the 16th and 17th centuries. And what's interesting about the bear wreck, however, is that that's much further out than a lot of these other shipwrecks. So that is uh, that makes it notable for one is that this bear wreck is is much further off the coast than a lot of these other historical and much older wrecks. The other thing that's interesting about the bear wreck is that they've known since it was discovered, as you said, in the late 70s and early 80s, sometime around there, that it didn't appear to be that old. Sometime uh, around the the beginning of the turn of the last century or yes. into the, uh, the, the early years of the 20th century. So the wreck itself was not a very old ship. But of yeah, course, I guess uh, when whoever first found it, whatever divers first found it, they weren't really sure what it was. They're not positive why they call it the bear wreck. At least we couldn't find any information. I'm yeah. sure there's people that know that and there's diving books about it, which, again, this was a cursory research show. But uh, <laughs> there was one guy that had posted on a diving forum back in 2008, because if you look up the bear wreck now, all you find is information about the epoxy. It's hard to find the information that predates the connection right. between those two. But we did find one diver's forum where a gentleman had said, no, I think some people thought that it possibly was the Barossa, which was a blockade runner mm. that belonged to the Confederates, was being used to transport cargo back during the Civil War. And uh, the, the, this this from the Naval History and Heritage Command website, Barossa was an antiquated and worn out craft used by the Confederates to transport cargo. While sailing from St. Mary's River on April 8, 1863, she sprang a leak and defied attempts to save her. Barossa was abandoned in the Gulf Stream, and then it gives a latitude and longitude, which I, uh, you know, I hadn't plugged these in. But mm -hmm. I guess the thought was that these divers who first saw it thought, oh, maybe that's the Barossa, which would be very, there's not a whole lot of it left. So it's hard to tell what it is at all. There are no, just for people that are wondering, there's no... Um, hard and fast defining characteristics about it beyond its length. And you have to kind of look forensically at the wreckage to determine what kind of vessel it is. So right. a, a, well, a non-expert, like if you weren't a marine expert or a ship expert on uh, seagoing vessels, I don't think you could dive on this wreck and say, oh, it's the blah, 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 because it's so far gone. No, that well, that's also what's interesting is that, yes, it's not from the uh, you know 16th, 17th or 18th century, really, at least not the first half of the 19th century. But what they did know is that this wreck, uh, aging it, is, as these divers with experience uh, would do, is that it's at least, you know, 60, 70, 80 years old. It was yes. at least that old. And because of the strong currents 
a lot of it was heavily buried in sand. So not a whole lot of it was exposed to get a really good idea of what ship, what type of ship this was and get a lot of characteristics about it. However, there have been divers throughout the decades that have been uh, taking small pieces of it and bringing it back as souvenirs. One of them that is mentioned in the documentary, this the Science Channel doc here, is Al Perkins. And as we'll see, he had been bringing up small artifacts from it on his various dives and uh, from there, trying to maybe get some clues about what ship this is, because what you want to find in a shipwreck like that is something with words on it, some numbers that can tie that to an actual ship and the documentation of the hardware that was on it. And in this case, what you really want to find is the ship's bell, because on that bell will be inscribed the name of the ship. Yes, and one of the things that's made clear in that series, which I thought was pretty fascinating, is that divers are always looking for the ship's bell. That's the holy grail of of identifying right. a sunken vessel or a shipwreck. But they can the implication in the show was, or what they said verbatim, the narrator said in the show, was that you dive your whole life and you'll be lucky to find one ship's bell well, your whole a, life. It's a tiny <laughs> item on a ship with thousands of uh, pieces on it, which are now scattered because of the way it went down and also the currents that carry it and and just being buried by sand and, and un, under the waves and time. So yeah, it's really hard to find. So it's, it's a real detective effort here to find these pieces and maybe get enough that you can triangulate some identity to these to these shipwrecks. And it's a great triumph when you do. And so uh, in this case, though, it looks like they, they're getting pretty close to being definite about it. Yeah, and I think the other thing to keep in mind and that's that you have to remember, and we talked about this a little bit in the Flight 19 series, is the rapid current of the Gulf Stream, which is a major factor in anything going down anywhere along the East Coast of the United States right. and all the way down from the tip of Florida all the way up, way out into the North Atlantic. The stream's average speed, at least right now, is around 5.6 miles per hour. So if you think about how deep the water is and something going into the water, whether it's an aircraft or a vessel, and if it's not sinking to the bottom like a stone, which most ships don't necessarily do, they take time to go down, mm-hmm. depending on the circumstances. I mean, they can go down quickly, but if the water is deep enough, they, they can travel several miles on their way to the bottom, getting caught up in that current, which makes it even harder to figure out where they went, which is something that comes up with Flight 19 a lot and other things that have seemingly vanished. They vanish because once they go under the waterline, they're not going to drop straight down right where they were when they started having trouble. Exactly. Yeah. And and of course, from the last reported message, distress signal uh, from the Cotopaxi, it was probably still chugging along at, uh, yes. at, we don't know how fast, but it's still moving as it's going and still under distress. And also, as we'll see, Caught in some bad weather. But before we start to piece this mystery together, let's go back to the beginning of the mystery itself, November 29th, 1925, when a coat epoxy loaded with coal leaves Charleston, South Carolina, and the shipyards there at uh, Clinchfield, uh, which also Clinchfield Navigation is a sister company to the Clinchfield mining consortium or their mining interest there because once you mine the coal you got to get it all over the place and so that was a long-standing route between north america and south america to come down by the eastern coast of florida into places like havana cuba and south america so that was a well-traveled route and the captain of this ship was captain william myers and what's interesting about the documentary they have his grandson on there and his name is douglas myers 
And he talks about his grandfather because uh, he was still widely known. And of course, Douglas Myers himself is an elderly man now, but he's got pictures. And, and at the time, 1925 was not, it's not 1825. There's great photos of it. He's a strapping, handsome young man, Captain William Myers. And he was the youngest ship's captain, I believe, out of Charleston port there. So, uh, but he'd made this trip many times and he was quite experienced and he was well-respected and capable, uh, very capable of his job as a captain. So, so we have a real familial connection between Captain William Myers and the families of these people that also went down. That's the other part of this mystery is that you got to realize, yeah, 32 people went down who all had families and people who cared for them who never got an answer about this. Yeah, and most of them were from Charleston, Yeah, most of them. So they probably a lot of them still have descendants in the area. Well, as as Douglas Myers says in uh, the special here, his family had a real connection with Clinchfield, the coal mining and the coal shipping, because his great-grandfather was the port engineer working for Clinchfield in the Charleston Harbor, Joseph G. Myers. He was the father of Captain William Myers, and it really... It kind of gets you. I mean, it it really uh, brings it home when you see that these are people who lost their uh, sons and loved ones at sea to a mystery here. And there was a newspaper article that covered the story at the time, the Thomasville Times Enterprise, where the father, Joseph Myers, stated that he never expected to see his son again. And it just, it, that really kind of brings it home is that he 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 knows how treacherous the sea can be. And he just figured they're never going to find these guys. It's also reported in that article that the last report from the Cotopaxi was that there was water in its hold and it was listing so badly that they were in serious trouble. But I think what's interesting here is we'll take a look at closer to uh, what has actually been discovered recently was that in this newspaper article, and, and what I'd kind of read about it before was that there was no location given at the time of this distress call that was received in Jacksonville. So that also adds to the mystery. They know they're in distress, but for whatever reason, they don't give them any coordinates. So they don't really know exactly where the Cotopaxi was when it started to get in trouble. And that's been the story mainly for all these decades. Wait, but I have a question. Yeah. Because they found in that series, they found that they did have coordinates, that, and that's how they knew the last known position. Well, they did, but that information was kind of hidden. It wasn't secret information. It was just in a hidden document. And that's what's really exciting about this case is that that information gets rediscovered. And that really answers a lot of questions and, and is a huge clue to this mystery. But what I'm getting at at the time, and it might be a contradiction or uh, uh, some, some conflict here, some conflicting information is that at the time, at least what was reported in the newspapers or was publicly known was that they did not know the location. The Cotopaxi radioed, they were in distress, but did not give coordinates as to their location. So that did not help with the massive search that was conducted afterwards, where they came up with nothing. And finally, after about a month, they had to give up. So where did the information come from on the location, the latitude and the longitude? Well, that's that's an interesting question. I, I don't know uh, who reported to the newspaper or where the newspaper reporters got that. But that was what was kindly known. But in, in reference to what you're saying here, Scott, there is like a lot of disasters and unfortunate accidents and, and in major incidents. There's a lot of misinformation that gets flown around, even today, of course. So like, I don't know, if Scott, if you do this, but after I hear of something major, I will read 
news accounts of something major that has happened that's being covered. But I, I wait a few days to reserve judgment on what the facts are, because I know that a bunch of information is going to come out that's not fully gelled, that people are just kind of putting out there because they got to get some story out in the news. But I don't take that to heart. I kind of sit back and wait until more information and better information comes through. Tonight, we're going to take a look at one of the most famous missing ship stories in the world, the Cotopaxi. That was great, but I meant the whole thing. Let's go to the top. The very top? Yeah. Well, okay. It's okay. only like six lines. I know. Yeah. I know, but I thought it had magic. All right. Well, maybe it did. <clears throat> if it did, use the first one, Sarah. <laughs> no, use right. the more magic one. I was filming a documentary for my family, just like an internal family documentary, when 9-11 happened. Yeah. And I actually have on tape, uh, it's me riding around in Los Angeles. I was in LA at the time about to move to New York. My wife and I are about to move to New York because right. she'd just gotten a job there. And I have me riding around in my Jeep at the time. I had a CJ7 with the radio on and the information is coming in yeah. and it's 80% of it is just speculation and false information yeah. about all kinds of other aircraft, what the plane looked like, how many other planes were in the air. It was crazy. And it's just all these people calling just all this information and almost none of it was true. Yeah, that's that's exactly And I would have forgotten about I mean, I would have forgotten about that, but I've seen, I, now I have it on film, so I've watched it a few times, right. you know, just like. Well, just what you're talking about, Scott, or what we're talking about here, that happened in the case of the Cotopaxi and that there was an early report that came out in the newspapers that the crew had actually been saved, that the ship was lost. However, the crew had been rescued. And how the news story started was, this may have been not the first account, but this is one of the major accounts here. The Florence Morning Newspaper had reported on December 11th, 1925, not a week or so after the actual ship had gone missing, that the Palaya brothers in the region there who had shipping interests had reported to Clinchfield authorities that the crew had actually been found. Yes. And so you can imagine if you're one of the loved ones of these crew members and, and their family, like now you're elated. There's some hope. The, the ship has been lost, but the crew members were picked up. And that sometimes happens where they're able to be rescued, especially not that far off the coast. The Playa Brothers is actually where the coal was supposed to come in. They were yeah. supposed to take the coal in and distribute it in Cuba. And I believe they sent a telegram that said, uh, Code Epoxy lost, crew safe, or something yeah. to that effect. Yeah. Right? Sadly, that was not to be the case. That story was a little premature. And when the story was followed up upon, it turns out the Palaya brothers had said in their defense that, no, sorry, that's just the news that we got from the Cuban Port Authority police that the crew members had been saved. But it wasn't actually true. Yeah, it turns out it was all a rumor. Yeah, it was a rumor. I'd, I actually found an article about this. They had found articles on that show as well. But this is one that we found independently from the Daily Times. This is Wilson, North Carolina, Monday evening, December 14th. 1925 of the Daily Times, right on the front page. Listen to this article. It's pretty interesting. There's no byline, or I would share it, so I'm not sure who wrote it for the paper. Report that crew of Cotopaxi safe believed false. Hope despaired. The report that the crew of the steamer Cotopaxi was safe in Havana, but the ship lost, now appears to be erroneous. Hope now abandoned of finding lost seamen. Charleston, South Carolina's December 13th. Despair, stark, and cold today gradually snuffed out the faint spark of hope that lingered in the hearts of kinmen for the safety of the 32 men aboard the steamer Cotopaxi, which vanished from sight in the belated hurricane on the Atlantic coast the first week of December, 
most of the men were from Charleston. Mm. It was a despair all the more burdensome because it settled down after a thin hope had been blown to a full flame by rumors saying the crew of the little ship long engaged in the coal trade between here and Havana had been rescued. What was the source of these rumors? No one can say. But they flew thick and fast about here on Friday, and on Friday night there came a report that seemed to wipe away all doubt that the men were safe, but the vessel lost. The headquarters offices of the Clinchfield Coal Corporation of Spartanburg, parent concern of the Clinchfield Navigations Company, the owner of the Cotopaxi, late that night announced the receipt of a cablegram from the Cuban agents of the vessel, which was given out as follows, quote, Cotopaxi crew safe in Havana, ship lost, end quote. Mm. It was signed by Pelea Brothers, to whom the ship and cargo of coal was consigned. With a great weight lifted from their minds, the relatives of the officers and seamen of the Cotopaxi sought to communicate with their loved ones in Havana, but the missing men could not be located in the Cuban port. The Havana port police had a rumor that they were safe in Charleston, landed in their home port by an unknown steamer. Yesterday, it developed that the cablegram had been erroneously announced. Pelea Brothers had cabled Cotopaxi crew safe, ship lost, without specifying where the crew was. Investigation showed the agents had based their message upon a statement of the Havana Port Police that the men had been saved. The police, however, could give no information, and apparently they had made their statement upon the basis of the same rumor that swept Charleston Friday. So that's the whole article. I do want to point out that that article is incredibly hard to read because it has so many typos. Mm, I mean, it is just yeah. every other word is misspelled. <laughs> but still... Um, <laughs> You can see that, like, there's even more to the story because the families, I guess, for a bit, like, looking for them in the port because they heard they were down there. And then people were saying, oh, no, they went back. They went on uh, some ship. They're back in Charleston. You need to go yeah. back there and look. Can you imagine going through all of that only to find out that none of it was – and it was all based on a rumor. And Ugh. it's a horrible thing for those folks to have to go through. Well, as we say, you know, every mystery, every legend, you know, there's a human element which uh, makes it relevant for us. And that's we feel a connection to, which is an, an added aspect other than just a strange phenomenon, possibly. So in this case, can you imagine just being a family member? And it's like, oh, there, now there's hope. And then it's a roller coaster ride uh, emotionally. And uh, people go through this with every large disaster and, and holding out hope. And, you know, MH370 uh, was, was the same. And when you're not getting any answers in that case as well, it's especially frustrating. So I'm, I'm still amazed by that. I think it was the postcard that came in from one of the pilots where he signed it with his nickname. That was only a family known nickname. <sighs> yes. And it there came was in after he was gone. Th that's what I'm saying. That one's got a little more paranormal weirdness that goes with it. And also the report that one of the guys had shown up a family member, like a cousin, I believe. Yeah. He showed up at his house yeah. that this family member claimed that uh, one of the flight crew members did. When we get to our conclusions here, we are going to talk about the Bermuda Triangle connection, but it may not be what you think. So in that case, I do believe that there was some navigational weirdness that went on, Flight 19 that is, as well as electronic fog uh, being another case where something around in the area is a, it's part of a natural but very bizarre and highly unusual and rare condition atmospherically. Actually, let's back up and talk about the ship itself so you can get a, a picture about how large this thing was and what kind of a beating it took on its trip down to Havana. 
So the code epoxy was uh, laid down on August 29th, 1918, and it launched on November 15th, 1918, which that's actually a pretty quick turnaround for a ship build. Well, that's actually part um, of the story, too, in that yes, it, how it quickly it was turned around and how inexpensively it was turned around. Yeah, it was 2,351 tons gross and uh, loaded. It was 4,062 tons, 253 feet long with a 43-foot beam and a depth of 25 foot and 6 inches with a 1,350-horsepower boiler engine. I think it was a a three-cylinder triple expansion engine, which is an incredibly complicated steam engine. And also, from what we could see in our brief research about this, also an engine that gave a lot of problems, at least this particular one. They had a lot of issues with it. Yeah, it did. It had this, the particular ship, the Code Epoxy, had a troublesome past. The engines went dead at least once, I know, leaving them at sea. And another time, she completely came ashore, like ran aground in Brazil, right? And was damaged so badly that the repairs cost almost as much as it was worth. Uh, well, it, it, increasing, yeah, I think the uh, the repairs were around $200,000, which I think in some estimations are, it would be around maybe $10 million. So a lot of money was spent to fix this thing. Back then, if you're doing the math, that they thought it could still be worthwhile enough to earn its cost in repairs. But as we know the history of it, well, these ships were built uh, from a plan, a design from the Emergency Fleet Corporation, the EFC. And of course, this specific design, I don't know if anyone cares, (laughs) unless you're really into ships, but it's a design number 1060. It's just a bulk carrier design manufactured for the United States Shipping Board, the USSB, because of the emergency shipbuilding program instituted in World War I. So the idea, though, is that we need more ships, we need more supplies going to these war areas, these these battle zones, and we need to step this up. So it was a lot of money thrown at building a bunch of ships with a really quick turnaround, which maybe weren't built as meticulously as they should have been. But that happens in wartime. You need to get the, your production lines ramped up really fast, and that was what was happening here with the USSB mandate to get a bunch of ships built for hauling cargo for the World War I efforts. And you're right, yeah, it ran aground off the coast of Brazil, uh, I believe when it was operating for Clinchfield Navigation, and, and at that time it was involved in a collision with a tugboat in Havana, which resulted in the tug being sunk. This is all bad luck, by the way. Yeah, but as we see, and sometimes they, they, they repair it and, and go on, like the Mary Celeste, it's like, yeah, I know a bunch of people have died, but let, let's just patch this thing up because there's money to be made with it. And that's the case here is that obviously the uh, Clinchfield navigation, when the USSB was selling off a bunch of its ships, decided to snatch this up for a, a pretty high price at the time, $325,000, yeah. $375,000. So a lot of money back then, but obviously they saw a value in it. Well, here's something I wanted to know as a kid. What does Cotopoxy mean? What, where's that word come from? Well, the ship was named after an active stratovolcano in the Andes Mountains in the country of Ecuador. Yeah, it, in the Cotopaxi province, about uh, 30 miles south of the capital of Quito. And it's a beautiful volcano that if you've seen pictures of it, it's your typical conical shape, 
there's snow on top of it. I believe it's one of the highest snow-covered volcanoes in the equatorial region. Yes. It's like 5,800 feet or something like yeah, that. Exactly, uh, 58 yeah, exactly. 5,897 uh, meters. So it's about... So uh, not bad for cursory research. <laughs> well, I'm looking at the <laughs> wiki page right now. but You're uh, looking. Yes. I'm not. I know. You're I gonna, I'm very impressed. Yeah. yeah. No, we, we had read these over uh, a bunch of times, but I didn't want to be wrong here. But uh, yeah, 19,347 feet. And so it was named after this uh, very iconic equatorial volcano, which last went off, the last eruption was, uh, it says here, August 2015 to January 2016. So still active and still very iconic. So, however, that's not the only Cotopaxi. Isn't there one in Colorado? There is. There's a little town in Colorado, and I only, I never went to it. I only know that there was a sign to it on I-25 as you drive south oh. out of Denver going towards Colorado Springs and Pueblo. Wow. Have you, have you been through there? No, it's pretty far west of I-25. You would have to be on your way to one of those little towns over that way. Yeah, I've been down further south of there is uh, Trinidad, and that's where all the cattle mutilations and all that kind of crazy stuff is going on, but that's a good deal further south. I I haven't been there, but I do remember seeing it on the sign all the time. Oh, by the way, when I said 5,800, I said feet earlier. I meant... uh, Meters. Meters. Yeah, the elevation. Well, so So. what you're saying, though, is uh, for all of its mountains and and, and beautiful mountain ranges there in Colorado, they do not have the second highest summit in Ecuador, the Cotopaxi. No. The Cotopaxi volcano is also one of the world's highest volcanoes. Um, right. But the town, and we're not going to look this up, we're waiting for a letter from someone who lives in uh, Cotopaxi, Colorado, but I will bet that the town was named after this iconic volcano as well. Well, that's the name of the ship, and why it came about is to fulfill this need to get a bunch of coal from North America to Cuba and South America in a very regular and continuous shipping line here. And so it was a, a very routine trip this was on. However, as we've talked about before in Flight 19 and, and various uh, maritime mysteries, right off the coast there in the North Atlantic, uh, off the eastern coast of Florida, some very bad weather, strong currents, they get bad storms, and they were prepared for that. Of course, they they have made this trip a lot, but there will be some argument and discussion here after the ship goes missing that it was not really well built for this type of battering it could get with the with the wild weather there. Yeah, and it's more than, it's not just how it was built, it was also how it was maintained and I yeah. think uh, the operational budget that it had to repair damage and problems. The sense that I got from this story and what happened to that vessel was that this was really a time when the commerce was more important than the lives that were at stake. And even the transportation machinery, it it doesn't matter. Whatever wagon you're using to get your goods to market, we don't care about the wagon. We don't care about the guy pulling the wagon. All we care about is how many times are we going to be able to fill it up with goods and sell them over and over before we lose the wagon and have to get another one and more people to pull it. It seems like they just didn't care based on the lawsuits, which I guess we'll, we'll touch on here that uh, came up after the Cotopaxi went down. Well, I really enjoyed this episode of Science Channel's Shipwreck Secrets. I thought they did a pretty good job, as you mentioned earlier, about uh, following the main players here and uh, some of the history and getting in touch with the with the grandson of the captain. Well, as we'll see here, and actually it's been uh, published in some great articles already, one of them that uh, I referenced was the one from Newsweek, talks about the main player's 
who have really put the puzzle pieces together here. And the main detective, I believe, here in the story is Michael Barnett, who is a marine biologist and underwater adventurer. And he and his dive partner, Joe Satelli, are the ones that really re-examined the bear wreck and started to put these puzzle pieces together and come up with this possible new solution for, one, accurately identifying what the bear wreck is and also solving the mystery of the code epoxy. But they, they didn't do it alone. What was interesting is that Michael Barnett had reached out to other divers that we'd mentioned prior. So Al Perkins was one guy who had dove on the bear wreck quite a bit, brought up some different artifacts. He had a, a valve, like a, a water or, or liquid valve, that had some stamping on it from, I, I believe, the Smith... Is it Smith, Victor? I think it was Scott, S-V, That's Scott it. Valve. That's right. Scott Valve, yeah. Yeah, so as we're talking, this is really interesting to get anything with a, a name or a registration number or some stamping on it that you can track down. And in this case, Al Perkins had brought up this valve that they found out came from a manufacturing company that was based in Ecorse, Michigan, which was only about 12 miles from where the Code Epoxy was built. So this is a possible connection. That's right. That's very interesting. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting in that here you have a piece that has a possible connection, but still it's not 100%. So you got to keep investigating here. And uh, Barnett also reached out to uh, Chuck Mead and Brendan Burke. And these guys are from the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum. And uh, so it's a, a lighthouse archaeological maritime program. And these guys are experts about shipwrecks around St. Augustine. So he, as you'll see in the documentary, they work with them. And also uh, something that's smart that Michael uh, Barrett did, the marine biologist, is that he reached out to an author and researcher, Guy Walters, really fascinating guy, based in London. And he asked him to do some research at Lloyd's of London. as And we mentioned him before on the Mary Celeste because they have records. Again, this stuff costs a lot of money. People want to track where it went and what happened to these ships. And he was able to find some very interesting documents that were about the Code Epoxy uh, when it was built and when it went down. And the phrase that I love here is that, uh, I, I'm not sure if Guy Walters said this, but as it sometimes said, the more amazing discoveries can be made by doing the research than rather on the water or yes, on the land. Yes. Because you can find stuff, but you don't know what it is until you find record of it. And that's what we're looking for here in this mystery is that they want to find some conclusive proof or documentation. And that's exactly what Guy Walters did. Uh, just as a side note, you'll see him on some documentaries. I actually saw him weirdly uh, as, a, as an everything connected kind of thing that I, I texted Scott. When, we, when this story started to break a few weeks ago, I was actually watching a documentary series uh, on the rise of Hitler on Netflix, I believe, uh, late at night. It's like, oh, this guy Walters, he seems like a a, a pretty good uh, interviewee and pretty knowledgeable. He'd be fun to have on the show. And then I think the next day he pops up in this Newsweek article. And I said, right, we got to talk about this. Did you properly cite that? I want to, I just want to mention that real quick for people that are, we'll be looking for it. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. Oh, yeah, go ahead, that series. Um, Yeah, it's a Newsweek article It's in the tech and science subheading called Ship That Mysteriously Vanished in Bermuda Triangle Almost a Century Ago Discovered. It's by uh, Aristos Georgiou um, and was published on January 28th, uh, 2020. So, and we'll have a link to that. But uh, that's one of the best articles out there. The thing about these articles and one of the things that we've quickly found, obviously, in our line of work is that when you're talking about legendary stuff like this, anything that's connected to Bermuda Triangle, what you get is a lot of really low-grade, first-thought, 
not soundbite, whatever the word is, but just kind of journalism that isn't well thought out. Mm-hmm. It, but this Newsweek article is is really well written and is a well rounded portrayal of this story. If you right. if you're unable to watch the uh, show, which you should also take a look at if this sounds interesting to you, so. What's well, going to be like, Sarah's going to be just tired of this crap and like, God, just, no, we're using the first she one. She just had a vacation. It was, I guess, you know, with... No, with, it's never uh, ending. She, she, she'll she tell... Well, you By the you way, Sarah, that's that. a joke. Yeah. Obviously, having yeah. a baby is not a vacation. Yeah, her editor, she just had a baby like, oh, oh boy, the sleep, the lack of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the poop and the, the stuff that comes out of the baby. All right. You ready? Wait. What Guy Walters found is that not only did he find uh, the records of the building, and I believe probably the shipwreck and and, uh, the description, as it said in the log at Lloyd's of London, in it, it gives the uh, the date that it did go down and what happened to it, because every ship's entry, you have to know when it was built, uh, the specs on it, and what happened to it in the end. But he didn't stop there because Guy Walters then goes to the National Archives of New York. And what he's looking for here is that he he uncovers some legal court records in this National Archive of New York of the liability class action lawsuit brought against the Clinchfield Navigation Company by the surviving family of the crew members. And their contention was that this ship was unseaworthy. And that this company knew that, and yet they are liable because they went ahead anyway, and it was a profit over safety concern. So they brought a claim against the Clinchfield Navigation Company and probably its uh, umbrella company there, Clinchfield Mining. And so Guy Walters comes across an interesting piece of information that possibly ties in the site of the bear wreck and the last known communication with the Cotopaxi, which would have been about 22 miles northwest of this bear wreck. Now, that's a long ways if you got to walk it. But if you're thinking that, uh, as we said earlier, the ship is still continuing to move, plus there are very strong currents in the area, could it possibly be that there is a more direct connection between the bear wreck and the last communication from the Cotopaxi? So what Guy Walters uncovers in these court records, in these testimonies in court, was that there was a gentleman named C. N. Costa, C-O-S-T-E, and uh, he testifies in this lawsuit. And this guy's no slouch. Costa held a master pilot certificate with nearly 20 years of experience. And he was employed by the company, as we said, but he was requested by Captain William Myers to go aboard and examine the hatch covers. So Costa was employed as a carpenter to work on the Cotopaxi before she was supposed to set sail or leave the harbor here. And this is where Guy Walters finds in the documents a petition from Charles M. Barnett. And that's the same last name. No, uh, no connection, I believe. Which right. was, but I just found that to be interesting. I'm, I'm trained to find connections here, even when they don't <laughs> exist. Uh, but Charles M. Barnett was president of the Clinchfield Navigation Company at the time. So... The president here, President Barnett of the Clinchfield Navigation Company, argues that the Cotopaxi was seaworthy, but it going missing was due to uh, a massive storm that brewed up. And this is what's also interesting is that there are historical records of weather. And in these historical records, it does confirm that a tropical storm had hit Florida at that time. On the same day, the distress signals were sent out. 
Yeah, and this was back before, I, I believe, before storms were named. They didn't always name them, so right. it was harder to track them. It's harder to track, but if you know the dates and you go through the records, you can find uh, some confirmation, which is what happened. So, yeah, that's true. There was a major storm that hit on November 29th or 30th, and uh, the code epoxy would have been right in the path of that. So that was something to contend with. Well, what they also know in this testimony of C.N. Costa was that he did go on board the Cotopaxi while it was uh, in dock, and he examined these hatch covers, and he was appalled, apparently, in that the most every hatch cover was in terrible shape or not functioning at all. Most everyone was found to be uh, just in, in really bad shape. So he started work on repairing as many hatches as he could because that was his job. However... It was decided that the ship would depart before he was finished. And again, this is what Scott uh, was alluding to earlier, and that there's more of a profit over safety emphasis in this trade at this time. And it was like, that's good enough. You can stop. We need to get going because we're losing a lot of money here. The other thing that Costa found that was uh, also appalling was that there were no protective tarps to prevent water from coming through the failed hatches. And in a massive storm, that can make a big difference. So... Those are two interesting things that were brought up in the testimony documents that had been uh, previously not really examined, as we said uh, in earlier part of the show, that it was thought that there was no communication. However, also found in the court documentation was the last reported location of the Cotopaxi as transmitted during her distress signal via the wireless around noon on November 30th, 1925. And that location would be longitude 80 degrees, 49 minutes west at latitude of 30 degrees, seven minutes north. So as we mentioned towards the earlier part of the show, the reports were saying that there was no location given. There was no coordinates given in conjunction with this distress signal. But we now know that's not true. Yeah. And so you're thinking, you're pointing to something unusual about that. Like maybe the location, you feel like the suppression, the location might have been suppressed? I, I boy, I I can't say. I don't know. I mean, it could just be a slip up again uh, with the uh, or news like reporting. maybe just poor, bad jur journalism. Well, I'm not sure that the newspaper journalists would have had access to that because that, as it seems here, this was company information, and of course, uh, I guess whoever received it in Jacksonville and and passed it along would know that. But this really only came out because of the court records. And what the other thing that we have come to learn, and, and a lot of people who do investigations will know this, is that if you really want to find the information about somebody or an incident, you see if they've been sued. You see if there's been a court record of it, because that's when the information comes out. If people are being truthful, real data comes out and it's recorded. Right. Actually, Marie Mayhew is, is good at that. She will always say like, well, let's see if someone's been sued, if there's been a lawsuit brought against them, because there should be some public record of, of court documentation. And that was the case here. It was just not known. And by the way, she just, to be fair, she has a show called Whatever Remains yes. Podcast and is a good yes. friend of ours and a part of the research yeah. core. So if you're looking for something to listen to, find Whatever Remains. That's Marie Mayhew. Yeah. It, that's just one place where you can go to find uh, at least some decent information you can work with. And, and this is major here. So again, this location, the reported location is about 22 miles north-northwest of the site of the bear wreck. When you add that together, this confirmation of a location with how the bear wreck has tracked and, and where the currents go, it's getting much, much stronger that this may be what that bear wreck is. 
the Cotopaxi. Yeah, it's right along the way of the Cotopaxi's path, and it also was an intersection with the Cotopaxi, the Cotopaxi, the Cotopaxi's path, and the storm. Right. It does add up, and there's other similarities between the bear wreck and the Cotopaxi's superstructure and the way that the ship is built that also align. And that was one of the things that uh, Barnett was is so good at figuring out. It's such a neat job because yeah. basically what he's trying to do is find these wrecks that are known, but they're known, they're located, but nobody knows what ship they are. Yeah. So he does the, the legwork to get to the bottom of that, which is a really fascinating aspect of this particular show. So I, there's a lot of things that are adding up there. And when you think about this problem with the hatches, you have to think about these are huge cargo holds that they would fill up with coal, which means that they also make really great bathtubs if you fill them up with water, <laughs> yeah. which is not a good thing to have on a boat. No. So if the holds aren't sealing in on top of that, they don't have the tarps to protect for the areas where they're loose. And then you get into a storm, you get into a situation where the vessel can experience what's called a down flood. And that's when water washes over the deck. And rather than washing off the boat and going back into the sea, it washes down into the holds and fills them up, thereby wrecking the buoyancy of the ship. And it can do it in a catastrophic way because it's also not going to do it in an even way necessarily. And it's going to put uneven stress on the structure of the vessel and it can cause it to break in half or... Uh, something worse or just get so low that it it finally sinks and all of the weight just takes it down to the bottom. And one of the interesting things about the bear wreck is that although there's not a lot of it left, you can see a tear in the hull. Oh, one thing before I forget. Yeah, I I think I may have said that the, the bear wreck was 22 miles off the coast of Florida. That's not correct. It's 22, about 22 miles from this last transmission to the bear wreck. And uh, when you're talking... Yeah, it's 35 miles off the coast. Right. So it's a long ways out there to get. But what happened was... Uh, oh, sorry not to interrupt you, but what happened... I no, just no, want no, to get that's this all in. I was going to say. Michael Barnett and his dive partner, Joe Satelli, which you'll see in the documentaries, that they go diving on this. And what's great is that they were able to find some identifying features of this bear wreck ship, that uh, they were able to find the stern. And also a couple of the boilers were upended. So they were sticking out of the sand. Because again, as we said, it's really heavy sand. And so they were able to take uh, measurements and bring those back. And that's when they take those measurements to Chuck Mead and Brendan Burke from the LAMP organization here, the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum and, and uh, Archaeological Program, and actually measure those against the blueprints of the ship. And they yes. line up pretty well. It's everything yeah. lines up, and and that's again, it, again, it's interesting to see the show and what Barnett's been through. So it's interesting because you know the only thing they found that really positively connected it was that valve. Yeah, the wreckage is so far gone; it's difficult to tell what's happening with all the concretion and it being buried in the sand and all of that kind of stuff. So it's it's difficult to make a conclusive statement. So, Scott, uh, before we conclude here, what's the one thing we actually cannot say about this mystery? <sighs> this is where we're going to part ways a little bit. Oh, ah, wait, okay. Mystery solved? Yeah, you can't say that here, but it's darn close. Well, I don't want to take that away, though, from, you know, Captain Meyer's grandson. Kind of what we have here, to sum up and, and restate what we found out, the measurements, very general measurements, do line up with and the architecture of the vessel. Yes, the architecture of the vessel, the blueprints, 
that looks really good and positive and towards a definite answer here. There is one valve that has a a brand stamp on it that Scott valve. Yes, places it within the location of the building of the Cotopaxi in Michigan. 12 miles from where it was built. That's where the Scott Valve Company was. That's right. Manufactured by the Great Lakes Engineering Works, or GLUE. The GLE, ship was. Yes, the ship was. Yeah, GLUE. G-L-E-W. G-L-E-W. In River... Blue. Yeah, at the, at the River Rouge <laughs> plant in Ecorse, Michigan. Uh, hole right. number 209. So... And that's a really good piece of evidence here, bringing it very close to the proximity of the manufacturing of the coat epoxy and this, where, where this valve was manufactured. However, what they still don't have is a piece from the bear wreck that has the name of the ship or some registration number that definitively proves that what is at the bear wreck site is the coat epoxy. So I would yeah. say we're, we're 95, 98% there, but it's not 100% yet. That's the thing about this that is so frustrating. And and when I say frustrating, I don't know for who, because yeah. uh, Barnett and his team, they seem to be comfortable with having solved the mystery. Right. At least that's the way it's presented in the show. And I think whether or not you watch it and you feel that it's solved personally, it says more about you than it does about the mystery. Because... You have to be ready to accept something on a few ounces of faith when it comes to this particular case. You know, there were other ships that were built that were similar. Is it possible that this is a case of mistaken identity? However, when you look at all the pieces, and by the way, mm. Barnett has been working on this for 15 years. Yeah. The, you know, we didn't just make a discovery show a few months ago. <laughs> right, this is right. Like, this guy yeah. is hardcore. He's done all the math. He's figured out what ships were built, what was missing. He knows all the vessels that have gone down in the area that have been reported missing and what they should be and if they've been identified and what ones haven't been. There's a lot of data to sort through to get to the conclusion that he got to. And if anyone is entitled to make it without actually having the nameplate in his hand, it's this guy. Yeah. This is the guy that gets to say that. So the lesson for me about this particular case, the case of the Code Epoxy, which is this legendary Bermuda Triangle story, to, and to his point, and I found some old postings from him, mm -hmm. it's pretty clear he thinks the Bermuda Triangle is a bunch of hokum. And he's in the trenches. He's the guy yeah. that's out there uh, figuring out what's going on. But this is a case that may say to us as humans, especially, that uh, sometimes that definitive answer is lost to time, and you're never, ever going to get it. You're not going to get the definitive, absolute positive answer here. But you know what? I am with these guys on, and you said 95%. Yeah. I think I'm probably 98% with them. Yeah. But conversely, this is where, you know, maybe you and I both mm -hmm. part ways with with people who say, oh, no, the Bermuda Triangle is hokum and that sort of thing. When I look at Flight 19 and the clear radio calls reporting that they were all having instrument trouble, yeah. and when I look at uh, Bruce Gernon, who came on our show mm -hmm. and talked about electronic fog, mm -hmm. and if you haven't heard that episode, go back and dig it up, go through our archives and find the one entitled Electronic Fog. I believe in those things, and I believe those things are peculiar to that particular region. I don't think it's defined by certain islands or any man-made borders, right. but I think something is going on in that part of the world that maybe is a natural phenomenon that we just don't understand. Yeah. However, I feel like in this case, the Cotopaxi probably has been found. And I think the biggest bummer about it 
is that it undermines that wonderful scene in Close Encounters. (laughs) (laughs) Brother, I'm right there with you on all this. Let me put it this way. I'm comfortable in having an answer about the code epoxy and that I think this bear wreck, that's what that is. And the answer is down there somewhere. Now, here's the other part of it. It's buried under so much sand. As a maritime archaeological project, like, you're probably maybe never going to find something definitive like the ship's bell in the wreck. And and really, there's not... You just not, can't uh, stay down long enough. You can't... Diving, yeah. you may as well be on Mars, on another planet. It's just too hard yeah. to be there long enough to do the work you need to do to excavate something like well, that. Well, and, and there's not enough drive, I would say, by outside and independent or even government organizations to find out, not like there was with the Titanic, where so many artifacts have been brought up at a much greater depth. It's a mystery, but more of the minor ones, unless you're really into the Bermuda Triangle and there's that aspect of it. So uh, we may never find out anything definitively, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm I'm pretty comfortable in that. I think that these these guys have have found it possibly, and there probably wasn't anything very paranormal about it going missing, other than that's the nature of the sea and and the terrible storms that happen along that shipping route. And the ship was ill prepared. Yeah, it had enough flaws that it was susceptible and vulnerable to that type of weather. And that was the position of the families bringing a, a liability lawsuit to the Clinchfield company. That that wasn't probably the best ship. I mean, look, this is the thing. That ship was completed for a cost of $827,648,000 and uh, 48 cents and a few change. That's a really expensive ship at the time. But due to the, uh, the nature of the time it was being built when everybody was in a rush... And maybe they could have spent more money to beef it up. It probably wasn't the best suited ship for that uh, type of weather that they experienced there off the eastern coast of Florida. So that was the position of the family. And in this case, there aren't enough clues that make it that mysterious. Not to me like Flight 19, where where you had communication that was also weird and mysterious. And, and we get a lot of chatter in our... YouTube posting, speaking of uh, going back to the first part of the show, we're talking about YouTube. Uh, one of the videos that we put up there, there are a lot of comments where people are just, they can't believe it. Like Charles Taylor said that, like what what was going through his mind, man? You can, you can see the sun. What could possibly happen? And I'm right there with you thinking that there was some kind of biological navigational problem uh, and also electronic that Cause possibly meteorological too. Yeah, so something that is yeah. a, again a very bizarre, very rare, but possible geomagnetic anomaly of some kind. If there are cases where there's a Bermuda Triangle factor, I think that's what you're going to find there. In this case, it's just a shipwreck and the very mysterious sea. The Clinchfield Coal Company, you know, it was founded in 1906 by a gentleman who I think probably got pushed out or sold it not too long after it became hugely successful because a lot of the mines, I guess they were uh, third parties would mine them and other companies would own them and things would get folded into each other. But Clinchfield had a history of some pretty bad accidents. In fact, I'm looking at a page right here that shows five serious mining disasters that took place uh, 1948, 63, 65, 78, and 83. Uh, The worst one being the one in 1963, Compass Mine Number 2, there was an explosion that killed 22 people. Mm. 
All told, in their minds, over 47 people died in explosions, and there were multiple lawsuits about their safety standards. Yep. And then if you take the 32 folks that were lost on the Cotopaxi, that's 79 people just there. And I'm sure there's others in other mines and other connected mines and, and, and possibly other ships lost at sea for all we know. But the crux of what I took away from this story and the, the brief research that we did on it to bring it to you in this style of show tonight is that the men in the ship were expendable. The goal was to get the coal from West Virginia to Cuba as many times as you could a year and to spend the least amount of money possible to get it done. And I feel like there might have been people sitting around looking at, you know, it's Economics 101, looking around at the opportunity cost of building a more expensive ship and maintaining it better as opposed to replacing the ship and the people every few years, which one costs less. It seems like it, it may have gone down that way, but it's it's hard to know. But you can see why with these lawsuits and the disposition of the families, the implication being that more care should have been taken for the people doing these jobs back then. And today, hopefully those standards would be different, even though, again, this company had an accident, an explosion just in 1983 that killed seven people. And they were later cited as being negligent in terms of safety operations at the mine. So I just briefly want to read the description of this particular accident that happened on June 21st, 1983. This is from uh, a website called uh, U.S. Mine Disasters. At approximately 10.15 p.m., June 21st, 1983, an explosion occurred in the two left entries of McClure No. 1 mine of Clinchfield Coal Company, located at McClure, Virginia. Ten miners were present in the two left entries at the time of the explosion, eight in the face area and two in the track entry. Seven died as a result of the explosion. Three miners at the faces survived the explosion and were rescued. A woman and a man in this particular accident were three days from retirement. And according to this, uh, this statement here on the internet, uh, the explosion was a result of failure to follow approved ventilation plan and maintain the separation between the air current ventilating the setup entries and the air current ventilating the two left entries after the two sets of entries were connected. Failure to fully recognize potential consequences of neglecting to maintain separation between the air current ventilating the setup entries. I'm paraphrasing here. Failure to ensure that procedures for maintaining separation between the air currents were established, fully understood, and followed by persons responsible. Failure to train certified persons in the proper procedures for conducting pre-shift examinations of conveyor belt and conveyor belt entries when making belt examinations. So yeah, as you can see, there's there's a lot of negligence going on here. The, the question being, would it have been criminal negligence or not? But when you look at this and you look at what happened uh, back in 1925 with that ship being put to sea and, and Captain Myers was trying to get it repaired, well, what do you think the conversations were like when they were working on that hold? They had that gentleman there, the engineer, fixing the holds, and they were, it's full. The coal's here. We got to get it out of here. You got to go. And they sent them into the path of that storm in a sieve, and it yeah, went down. Yeah. Well, and that was the end of it. This all reminded me of uh, some of the cases of the 2010 Upper Big Branch Mine accident in which 29 workers oh, yes. were killed. And the CEO of Massey Energy Company, Donald Blankenship, was widely criticized. And they found memos from him saying, uh, essentially, that uh, safety is second to profits. And we, telling all of his uh, his managers that we got to keep pushing coal, 
no matter of the safety regulations and the inspections. Pushing coal and selling coal is is number one. And yeah, that's how business operates. I'm not really surprised. And in Donald Blankenship's trial here, it was a mixed bag in that uh, the more serious charges he was not convicted on. Instead of the three felony charges that would have led to a prison term of 30 years, this is from a New York Times article on the whole case, there was a long and complex trial that began on October 1st, and the jurors ended up convicting Mr. Blankenship, as it says here, I'm quoting from the article, of only a single misdemeanor charge that carried a maximum of a year in prison instead of the the 30 years for the felonies, even though uh, these memos were found. So it's a mixed bag. Yes, he did go to trial. And as you can imagine, with the case of Clinchfield versus the families of the Cotopaxi, Clinchfield was also not held liable. So they came out, uh, the victors in that court case. And the families of the Cotopaxi crew members also never received justice for possible negligence. So there you go. That's how history laid out uh, for those families. They never got an answer. They never got justice uh, for any possible uh, liability from the company. But now they may have an answer as to where the ship ended up, at least. Every time we cover one of these stories, I try to find the the one thing that I can take away that we can put in our toolbox for future stories, for future legends and mysteries that we're trying to figure out and do research on. And in this case, one of the most fascinating things about this story, the story of the Cotopaxi, is that this ship was actually discovered over 40 years ago. They had it. They had already found it. They just didn't know it. And you have to wonder, when it comes to missing aircraft and vessels and things like that, how many of them have already been discovered? We just don't have them properly cataloged. It goes all the way back to how we're constantly talking about all the things that are sitting in museums that haven't been labeled or identified. Sometimes they're not in the museum. Sometimes they're at the bottom of the ocean or up in the mountains, and people have hiked past that airplane that everyone's been looking for for 50 years. They just didn't know what it was. And that's why it's such a great time to be alive for this kind of stuff now, because thanks to the internet and and global computing, people are coalescing all this data and all these databases are coming together. And people like Michael Barnett are going through it and putting the pieces together. And that is what's really exciting because sometimes you find the needle in the haystack before you realize what needle it is. That's going to wrap up tonight's discussion show on the Cotopaxi. We'll be back next week with a new show. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Mazza. 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 Mazza? It's probably Mazza. In Italian, it would be Maz. It would be Mazza, but... All right. Mazza? We'll say Mazza. I'm sure he yeah, gets Yeah, because it's not like Mazza ball. It doesn't... No, when there's... In, it, in Italian and, and maybe... Sarah could back me up that when there's Moza. two. When yeah, there's you're two, right. It probably is matzah. It's like pizza. Say matzah. Yeah, matzah. You're right. Okay. Say yeah, matzah. Let's see if we Italian thing. Here we go. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, 
Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>